started it last week, just breaking out the idea of, of how God applies the gospel, what the gospel is, and how it's applied to, to mankind, how we get to uh, receive it and be blessed by it. And last week, I just provided an overview. Um, so we kind of looked at the history, and we looked at an overview of the different views that have, have been presented, and we presented kind of the view that we've held at the way and that we teach at the way. There's three views that have been generally taught throughout the history of the church. One is that we merit salvation by our own righteousness. If you remember, that was called Pelagianism, and that was, that was regarded as a heresy. Um, they, uh, the, the, the church recognized early on that that, that that was not accurate, that that was against the teaching of Christ and the church. Uh, then, as time went on, uh, a, a derivative or a variation of Pelagianism came up that was called semi-Pelagianism that basically said we cooperate with God, we need grace for salvation, but we cooperate with God, and as a result of our cooperation, we can actually be saved. That's all right. Thanks for looking. I don't have a timer. It's what I'm talking about, so... We'll see how this goes. <clears throat> don't, don't anybody think that they need to replace my, my timer. We'll just deal. We're here. All right. The third view. The third, so, so there's the, the view that we merit it. There's the view that we cooperate with our salvation. And the third view, which is what the church had defended throughout history. As, as these other two views came up, the, the church stood against them and defended this view. It's the view that came to us through the Protestant Reformation and the teaching of people like Martin Luther and John Calvin, Charles Spurgeon, and other great preachers of history have brought this to us. It is the view that God sovereignly saves sinners by grace without any cooperation from us at all. We do nothing except get saved. We are passive in the whole work. That is the view that we teach and promote at the way. We summarize that view this way last week. We believe that God mercifully saves sinners by his grace and for his glory. Salvation belongs to the Lord. That is the the cry of the scripture over and over and over. It belongs to him. It's a summary though of, of this view and it, it is, uh, it's deeper than that. We're going to spend the next several weeks actually walking through that. So back in history, and I, I, I don't plan to spend too much time in, in a history lesson today, but I want to set the stage. Back after the Reformation, some, some people came along and started teaching that we cooperate with God and get saved. They were following a man named J- Jacobus Arminius, and he began to teach these things against what had been agreed upon and affirmed by the Protestant Reformation. And so some leaders in the Protestant Reformed Protestant Church got together and they said, is this accurate? Is what he's teaching right? Is it biblical? Does it stand in line with Scripture or not? And so for about six months, they met 154 times, something like that. And they studied the Scripture. And at the end of their meeting, they came out with what's called the canon, or I'm not sorry, the Canons of Dort. Yes. Sorry. I don't know why it felt like... It's not in my notes. I don't know why it felt like it wasn't right, but that's what it's called. And they came out with these five points that basically, this is, this is our view. His view is in error. This is the view that our churches are going to hold. And, the, and, and, and 
They laid them out in a different order than we're going to walk through them, but that's what we're going to be studying over the next five weeks. And in the sixth week, we'll summarize it all and we'll sum it all up and we'll tie a big bow on top of it so that you'll see how it all fits together. The first doctrine we're going to study, the first point we're going to study, it's been called things like radical corruption, radical depravity. But most of you sitting in the room probably have heard it most commonly referred to as total depravity. It speaks about the nature of man. You see, this is important because as we look at the canons of Dort and as we determine, are we going to, are we going to see these as biblical? As we, are, are we going to see them? Can we see them expressed in the scripture? The reason that we would hold to this view at this church is because we believe, as we look at the scripture, not only does it align with the teaching of the gospel and salvation, but it most clearly and consistently connects to every other doctrine that we've taught through. The doctrine of man, the doctrine of who God is, the doctrine of that, that God is sovereign over all things. We, we recognize that this fits most consistently with the perspective of man. That we are, whether we like to admit it, totally depraved. We are in a fallen, sinful condition apart from Christ. And we are unable to save ourselves or to save anyone else. That's the point we're going to be looking at today from the text. John chapter 6, verse 41 through 47. Uh, as I read, let me encourage you to follow along. So the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread of life that came down from heaven. They said, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say I've come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. Let's pray. Father, help us today. Help us to discern between emotion and feeling and and personal perspective, and what your word really says. Help us, Father, by, by leading us into truth. You're, you told us, Jesus told us, that the Spirit would be given to lead us into truth. And so where my thoughts and my words might not be true, I pray, Father, that the, the Spirit would just remove those, that they would not be able to land on anyone's heart. But God, where they are true, I pray. That by them you would open hearts, open eyes, give ears to hear. That we might really, truly believe. That we might grow closer to you. That we might know you better. That we might rejoice in the reality of our salvation. I pray these things, Jesus, in your name. Amen. All right, so let's set this in context. So here Jesus, the day before this, Jesus had fed the multitude with five loaves and two fish. They were astonished at this miracle. They they were astonished that he had the power to do that. He, in that night, he goes across the sea. And the next morning, this crowd, this multitude begin to look for him. And they're, they're, where'd Jesus go? Where'd Jesus go? And they go find him. And he ends up beginning to teach him, teach them about salvation. In fact, he tells them that the way to salvation, the work that God expects of us is to believe in him whom he has sent, to believe in the one God has sent. 
And as a result of the start of this conversation, these people who have just eaten a miraculous meal, who have seen Jesus exercise great power just the day before, begin to ask him for a sign. What sign are you going to do? Like, how are you going to prove to us that you're from God? Moses, he gave us bread in the wilderness. What's your sign? Totally ignoring what they had just seen the day before. And Jesus, he confronts them. He doesn't give them the answer that they want. In fact, he makes a claim that shocks them, that that bothers them. And this is the claim. It's in John chapter 6, verse 35. We didn't read it, but if you just look at your Bible and you just scroll just a few verses up, you'll see it. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. See, they're asking, Moses brought us bread from heaven out in the wilderness and he brought us bread. Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall never hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. This is the claim. This is the statement that they are now grumbling about in verse 41. They're grumbling. He's he's the bread. How can he be the bread? I mean, he's related to Mary and Joseph. We, we, We know his parents. We know where he's from. We know where he lives. How can he be the bread? I think it's extremely interesting. Jesus doesn't try to correct them. He doesn't enter into debate with them. He doesn't try to argue with them in any way. He actually just confronts them again. In verse 44, or in verse 43, he answers them. Do not grumble among yourselves. There's no sense in grumbling. There's no sense in arguing about this. There's no sense in being upset by this. Why? Because no one can come to me. Unless the Father draws him to me. No one can come. Here's the thing. There is a lack of ability that Jesus is honing in on, that he's touching on here. That no matter how hard they try. No matter how hard they argue. No matter how much they disagree. No matter how true they think their truth is. No one can come unless the Father draws him. We believe, this is the summary of the view that I would suggest that we would would teach in line with the doctrine of total depravity. We believe God's grace is necessary for salvation because the sinner is unable to come to Jesus on their own. We believe God's grace is necessary for salvation because the sinner is unable to come to Jesus on their own. The sinner's problem isn't one of opportunity. These men, these Jewish folks, men and women, are standing right there in front of Jesus. They have just seen a miracle, just this massive miracle performed by Jesus the day before. They have just heard teaching about the gospel. If you would just believe in me, you would be saved. It is not an issue of opportunity for them. It's not an issue of opportunity for people in the world today. Jesus sent his church into the world to do what? Proclaim the gospel. We are a sent people. That everywhere we go, we are to be proclaiming the gospel. There is access to the gospel in in most every place in the world. And where there's not, where there's not, God can get it there. In fact, there's two little villages in West Africa that have access to the gospel because God sent his people there. There are churches in those two little villages. They're, they're, They're small. They're in their infancy stage. We are working hard to bring organization and lead up leaders or, or bring up leaders within the churches. But there are groups of believers in those villages because God has sent his 
people to them. That, that, the, the, the villages around those two little villages have access to the gospel now because believers who know and believe the gospel are there every day of the year. This is not a problem of opportunity. The, the, the sinner's problem isn't one of opportunity. The sinner's problem isn't a matter of will or choice. These Jewish folks, had you asked them, would have said, yes, we want to believe in the Messiah. Yes, we want to follow the Messiah. Yes, when he comes, we are his. We are with him. They would have willed it. They would have made the choice for it. And yet he's standing right there in front of them. And they are rejecting him. No, no, that sign's not enough. We demand another sign. In fact, at the end of this chapter, all of this multitude is going to leave upset and discouraged because what he's telling them, they don't like. The sinner's problem isn't a matter of will or choice. The problem we face is is not a problem of being able to, to just decide the right thing. No, no one, no one, I, I can tell you this with certainty. No one that I have ever spoken to about the gospel, no one that I have ever counseled as a pastor, no one who I've ever spoken to, just had general conversation with as a friend, has ever said, I look forward to going to hell. No one. Have you? I long for the day that I suffer in hell for eternity. No, no one I know wills that or chooses that. In fact, most everyone I know whether they have reason to believe it or not, think they're on their way to heaven. Because that's their will. Because that's their choice. The sinner's problem isn't a problem of opportunity. It's not a problem of a will or choice. The sinner's problem isn't a matter of knowledge. Maybe, maybe Jesus wasn't clear enough. You know, he was speaking in an analogy here. Maybe he shouldn't have been talking about him being the bread of life. Maybe he should have just been upfront and plain, like saying, believe in the one whom God has sent. Oh, oh, he did. <laughs> he, he was really clear. They understood exactly what he was saying. That's why they would leave him in the end. Even today, man, we're, we're so quick to do this. Even today, in conversations about evangelization and evangelism, we start talking about methodology. You've got to figure out the right methodology so that you get the right information to the person. You've got to say it just exactly Right. And, and, and you know, it's, it's, it's not just the information you share. You've got to say it exactly right, but, but you've got to do it in exactly the right way. Those guys that stand out on the street corner, nah, they're, they're wrong. They shouldn't do it that way. That's, that's what we hear, right? In fact, many of you would say, yeah, I, I think that's right. I'd say, where Christ is proclaimed, let's just celebrate the Christ is proclaimed. But the guy standing on the street corner, they're like, oh, these people who talk about relational evangelism and being friends with somebody and developing, eh, come on, let's just get to the gospel. Brothers and sisters, the, the sinner's problem, it, it's not a matter of knowledge. So, so we need to quit depending so much on methodology and us having every bit of the information exactly right. These people had more knowledge than most of us do. They understood. They had been being trained all of their life. And it didn't matter. The thing is, this, this isn't a, it's not a matter of knowledge. It's not a matter of opportunity. It's not a matter of will or choice. It's not even a problem of permission. 
They're given permission to believe. Verse 47, Jesus says, whoever believes. Whoever. Whoever believes can can be saved. I will save them. There's not a problem with permission. Everyone in the world has been given permission to believe. We have been sent to tell this to everyone who has ever lived. Everyone has been given permission. It's not a problem of permission. It is a problem of ability. It's not a, it's not a no one may come. He says no one can come. This, the, 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 the obligatory illustration that must be used here is the one of us learning English in, the, in elementary school. I had a fifth grade teacher. I think she was fifth grade. It, uh, it's been a long time ago. Her name was Mrs. Banks. I do remember that. Every time a student would ask about sharpening a pencil or going to the bathroom, can I sharpen a pencil? Can I go to the bathroom? And she'd always say the same thing. I don't know. Can you? I think I can. Can I? Well, I don't know. Can you? And she would, she would, you'd be in this loop with her until you finally ask permission. See, going to the bathroom and sharpening your pencil and Elementary school was about permission. It was about needing permission to go do something. This is not a, it's not an issue of permission. It's an issue of ability. We believe God's grace is necessary for salvation because the sinner is unable. He doesn't have the ability. He is powerless to do this thing. He is powerless to come to Jesus on his own. When Jesus says no one can come, he is saying no one has power to, no one has ability to. In fact, the word in the Greek is dynamus, which is how we get the word dynamite, which speaks of power, which speaks of ability. It doesn't speak of permission. It doesn't speak of knowledge. It doesn't speak of, of opportunity. It doesn't speak of any of those things. It speaks of ability. He can't come because he's not able. No sinner can. The sinner is unable to come to Jesus. That is what he's saying. It's not the first time that he's said this. This isn't a fluke. It's not like he meant to say may. It's not like he, he thought, oh, well, well I, I'll correct that later. You know, we'll edit that before it gets published and, and put in the Bible. No, this is the basis of his teaching. John chapter 3, you know, the story of Nicodemus coming to Jesus secretly and asking him questions and interacting, having the secret meeting at night. And Jesus says to him in John 3, 3, truly, truly, I say to you. You know what he means when he says truly, truly? It means it's true. <laughs> he means this, this is truth. It's not hard. He says, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot. Same word, this time just with a little addition that makes it negative. He cannot see the kingdom of God. We are not even able to see it. We're not able to discern it. We're not able to experience it. It, We have a lack of ability. John 3, 5, he he says to him, Truly, truly, I say to you. Again, he, he wants him to know this is true. Unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Not only can we not see it, we can't even enter it. We can't even walk through the gate. We have no ability. There is no power, 
no chance, no, no, oh, I can sum it up and pull myself up by my bootstraps and I can make it through. You can't do it. I can't do it. No sinner can. In fact, in this little section, if you'll remember the story of Nicodemus in John chapter 3, we're going to deal with it in a few weeks, but Jesus is saying you can't do this unless you're born again. Now, how many of us had, had power over when we got born or when we were conceived? Or do we have any ability to be born to begin with? How many of you talk to your parents to let them know now's the time? Didn't happen. Some of you surprised your, even your parents. We got no ability in that. Why would we think that suddenly we have ability to be born spiritually if we don't have any ability to be born Physically. Who do we think we are? (laughs) It's shocking to me. For years I lived this way though. Thought, Thought I'd done something. John chapter 6 again. Jesus continues in his conversation with these, these Jewish folks who have eaten his miraculous meal, who have now entered into conversation with him, who are grumbling about what he is telling them. And he comes to the place in John chapter 6, verse 65, where he says, This is why I told you that no one can come. Not no one may. Not, not it might happen. No one can. They have no ability. They have no power. They are un able to come unless unless it is granted that means gifted or given by to him by the father no one has the ability unless god does something to them no one is able no one can do it paul picks up on this idea and in romans chapter 8 one of the most beautiful expressions of what the gospel bears out in a person's life. There's now no condemnation in Christ Jesus. He, who, those who he foreknew, he predestined to become likeness of Christ. Those who he uh, predestined, he justified. Those who he justified, he glorified. You know that passage uh, then at the end of Romans chapter 8 where it says that uh, neither life nor death, angels nor demons will separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Those beautiful, powerful passages about what it means to be found in Christ. Right amongst them, he says in John chapter, or Romans chapter 8, verse 7, for the, mind is set, for the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. It is impossible. It has no power. It has no ability. There is no ability for the sinner to do anything to change themselves or to gain a new ability on their own. They can't do it. The sinner is only able to continue in sin. The sinner is unable to come to Jesus. The sinner is only able to continue in sin. Sinners aren't inactive. Right? You understand this? It's not like we're all sitting around in our sin just waiting and, 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 and man, I, I don't really deserve to be here. I wish somebody would come along and just... We're not inactive in this. We are running around doing all kinds of things. Some of those things might even appear moral and noble. They might appear very upright. These people that Jesus is talking to in John chapter 6, if you were to look at their life from the outside in, you would assume they're a very noble, very moral people. Maybe you even know people in your life that they are very, seemingly very moral, seemingly good people. 
The reality is, is that isn't ever true. The sinner is only ever able to continue in sin. This is why Jesus doesn't get upset with them when they begin to grumble. This is, not, this is why he doesn't just flat out rebuke them. This is why he doesn't just get angry and walk away. Because they're only doing what their level of ability allows them to do. They, they don't have power to, to do anything other than grumble against the truth. They don't have any power but to continue in sin. So the problem that they face is the same problem we face. That even the best things we do are not really good if we've not been given the ability to do good things by God. Even the best works of man are shot through with the need for God's grace. I believe this so much that I recognize that even standing here, even standing in a pulpit, preaching the word, seeking to convince you of your need for God to act to save you, Seeking to teach the scripture as, as closely and as clearly and as concisely, as directly as possible. I recognize that if Christ hasn't made me able to do a good work, I will do this for nothing but selfish reasons. In fact, I face it every week. Every Sunday I stand here, I find in myself two people fighting. One longs to see you glorify God, longs to see you on your face before him, longs to see you living every day to his glory for the good of his people, to see his gospel advanced in this world. One side of me longs to see that. And there's a part of me that's really just wanting a pat on the back. It's really just wanting the praises of people. Really, just honestly, I don't even care if you mean it. Just tell me the lie. (laughs) Good job, Seth. I really appreciated that, Seth. There's a part of me that would be satisfied with that because there's really nothing noble in selfish action. The thing is, that's not just me. It's not just these Jewish folks that were standing there talking to Jesus. It's every one of us. Even the noble things we do, even those potentially moral things we do are shot through with the need for God's grace if they are to be accepted or they are to truly be noble. And that's because... We don't have a problem with the activity. We have a problem with our nature. We have a problem with our core being. And as the Bible's clear about this. Romans 1, 18 through 22. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Their, their sin, they're, they're burying the truth. They don't, they don't want it to come out. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in things that have been made. God has not hidden himself. He has not made himself unknowable. He has made himself plain. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking. Their thinking became profitless. Their thinking, their perspectives, their their minds, their ability to understand and perceive became profitless. Their foolish hearts were darkened even to the depths of their emotion, to the depths of of their being. They are in darkness. Claiming to be wise, they became 
fools. Man, there's a lot of wisdom being thrown around out there today, right? Like all these people that this is this is what's the right thing. This is the best way. This is the smart way. But in contrast to the wisdom of God, it is absolute foolishness. That's why the doctrine is often referred to as total depravity, because the effect of sin is complete. It's total. You are not just a little sinful. We are not just a a, a smidgen sinful. We are completely sinful, all the way down to the depths of our minds and our hearts. Everything about us is fallen. Romans 3, 10 through 18, as he, he, he builds this argument out over three chapters, comes to Romans 3, 10 through 18, writing still about fallen man. And he says, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. You know why they don't understand? Because their thinking is futile. Their hearts are darkened. Their wisdom is actually foolishness. No one seeks God. Oh, wait a minute. I, I, I sought God. But why did I? Why, why would I? Is Paul incorrect here? Is he quoting from, from, from the prophets and, 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 and the prophets were lying? No. No one can come to God unless he's drawing them. If there's a seeker in the room, it's because he has already begun the work of drawing them to himself. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. These are strong words. They they really have no value. No one does good. Not even one. You know what it means when he says not even one? Even you. Even me. Even the best among us. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. That, that final phrase, there is no fear of God before their eyes, is just another way to say they did not know, they did not honor God or give thanks to Him. They did not recognize God as God. That's the condition of every heart, of every fallen being, of every fallen person. That is every one of us. Paul goes on to say, just a few verses later, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We are so fallen, we are so depraved that we have no ability to be anything but depraved. The sinner only has the ability to continue in sin. Later, he writes the book to the church in Ephesus and he writes in chapter 2, verse 133, You were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked. You see, what's interesting about this verse is we can see our problem isn't just the activity. It's the state of being. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Following after the course of this world. You were following after the influence of the world. You were following after the influence of the prince of the power of the air. The spirit that's now at work in the sons of disobedience. 
So you're following after these two influences. You're given to them. You're enslaved by them is what he's suggesting. You have no ability but do anything but follow them because you are dead. You follow after the world. You follow after the devil. And among whom, he goes on, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh. We can't point at the devil and say, the devil made me do it. Because you are pursuing the passions of your flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. Remember the body and mind? Heart darkened, thinking futile. We're by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. This is who you used to be, he says. So we don't sin and become a sinner. You're not born and then, oh, one day you decide to lie to your parents because that's the first sin, right? Like you lie to your parents. No, we sin because naturally we are sinners. This is who we are. The thing is, it's not a sickness. It's not like getting getting strep throat and needing an antibiotic to just help our bodies just do what they were meant to do. It's death. It's dead. It's lack of life. It's lack of ability. You can't breathe. You can't think, you can't drink, you can't eat. You're dead, Paul says, in your sins and trespasses. Which begs the question, who can then be saved? How is it possible that any of us sit in this room, how is it possible that we would start a service by celebrating new life in these kids? How is it possible or the sinner is unable to come to God or come to, to Jesus. The, the sinner can only continue in sin. But God is able to draw the sinner to Jesus and salvation. That is exactly what Jesus is telling us in John chapter 6. He says, listen, no one can come. This is verse 44. No one can come to me unless there's a condition. Or there's, there's something that happens. Unless God, the Father, draws him. The, the, the one who sent me draws him. And on that day, I will raise him up on the last day. And I will raise him up. The, the Father draws him and I will raise him up. No one can come by themselves, but the Father can draw him and I will raise him up. That's the whole point of this passage that Jesus wants them to see. You're unable to do this. No wonder you're grumbling. You have no ability to do it. But God can draw you. That's why I enter into conversation with you. That's why I speak the truth to you. That's why I know that you're going to grumble, but I'm going to tell you the truth anyway. That's why I said no one can come, he says in, in, in later verse, verse 65. That's why I said no one can come unless the Father grants it to him. Because there's opportunity. You've been given permission, he says. But no one can. Because no one can, no one will. Unless the Father draws him. You see, all of these passages that we've read, in John chapter 6, John chapter 3, John, uh, or, or, or Romans chapter 1 uh, to 3, all of these passages, Romans chapter 8, Ephesians 2, they all are followed, every last one of them, by the promise or, or, or by the reality that what man can't do, God can. Ephesians 2, 1 through 3, 
lays out where we were in our sin and trespasses, dead, course of the world, course of the prince of the power of the air, passions of the flesh. Verse 4 says, But God, being rich in mercy, has made you alive. You were dead. God made you alive. Jesus says you can't come, but the Father can draw you. You can't come, but the Father can grant you the ability to come. God is able to do what we can't. God is able to save and salvation belongs to the Lord. Brothers and sisters, this would be hopeless if not for God. We would be lost if not for God. We would be dead and condemned in our sin if not for God. We have been given permission. We have been given opportunity. We have been given knowledge. We have been given some, some information. But only God can save the lost. There's this beautiful story that reminded me of as I was thinking it uh, this week. There was this rich man that came to Jesus. It's a different occasion. He comes to Jesus and he says, what do I need to do to gain eternal life? And Jesus enters into this conversation. He's like, well, what do, what do the commands say? And the guy lays out some commands and he says, you know, I've, I've obeyed these since I was a child. I've been obedient in these things since I was a child. Now, let's just give him the benefit of the doubt. He, may, he probably never killed anybody, like literally killed someone. He, he maybe never stole. Let, let's just give him the benefit of the doubt that he was actually a pretty decent dude. But Jesus didn't let him stay there, did he? He, he, he responds. He says, yeah, but there's, there's one thing. There's one thing. Go sell all your stuff and give it to the poor. And this guy walks away sad because he was very rich. You see, Jesus wasn't saying, hey, you can work your way in. You have the ability. If you'll just follow these rules, you have the ability. What Jesus was doing was confronting him with the truth. No matter how much you think you're obeying, you're not really obeying. There's always something you love more than me. There's always something you desire more than me. There's always a line you just won't cross. And that man walked away very sad. Because he loved his wealth more than he loved the idea of living with Jesus forever and ever. So Jesus then turns around and talks to his disciples. He says, you know, it's harder for a camel to to squeeze through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter heaven. And we're so quick and easy just to apply that to a very small circumstance. People with money, oh, you're at risk. (laughs) But I think there's a principle there that applies to every one of us. It's impossible. Jesus is using a little bit of hyperbole. It's impossible to get a camel through the eye of a needle. Right? You ever seen that happen? Think it could happen? Probably not. It's impossible. And just as we've heard today, it is impossible for any man to come to God unless they've been drawn to God, unless they've been granted the ability to come to God through Jesus Christ. Who then can be saved? That was the exact question that the disciples asked Jesus in response to him talking about this wealthy man. You know what his answer was? What's impossible with man is possible with God. You and I 
Let's just own it. Let's just be honest about it. It's not fun. It's not, it's not, it's not the most exciting, encouraging conversation when we start this place that we are unable to save ourselves. We are unable to come to God. You are not here today trusting in Jesus Christ because you had some part to play in it. You were drawn by the Father. You were drawn by the one that sent Jesus to live on this earth, to die on the cross, and to rise on the third day. You were drawn by him. So give glory to him and him alone. Let's pray.